Welcome to the Security in Color podcast. I'm your host, Dominique West, and each Tuesday, I will bring you the latest and greatest in cybersecurity news, tips, and career guidance. Let's see what's new for this week. Hey, guess who's back? (laughs) Welcome back to another episode of Security in Color Season 2. Oh my gosh, I think it just hit me. I didn't realize how much I missed saying those words (laughs) until just now. Um, Thank you so much to everyone who has shown such good support on season one and have given me feedback or give me a comment, send me a note or a tweet, X, Y, Z. I have seen them and read them all. And I appreciate each and every one of you who take the time to listen to my episodes. I feel like time flew by. It's been a whole month. I hope you miss me because I missed you. And I hope you miss my corny jokes because I still got some in store. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I took advantage of the time being away to, you know, recenter myself. I wanted to see how I can come back better, bring you more value, all of that good stuff. So with that, we do have some slight changes in the Security and Color Season 2 episodes. Don't worry, I'm still bringing you cybersecurity news on Tuesday. I'm not leaving you hanging. Don't worry about that. (laughs) I still got you. Um, But what I am going to do is you'll hear a little bit more of me now on Thursday, where I'm releasing something called The Cloud in Color. Every Thursday, I'm going to drop a short episode going over a topic in cloud security. I know many of you are interested in the topic. I've been asked a ton of questions about how I've gotten to this point. How can people pivot into it? What should they be learning? What resources? X, Y, Z. And I thought, why not give that to you on this platform, right? Everyone is interested. I can do a one-stop shop (laughs) and give it to you in episodes. I think it's um, something that is desperately needed, a voice in cloud security that people can hear of. We have tons of articles and everything out there, but you know, I wanted to be able to give it to you additionally on this platform and make sure that I'm covering as many topics as I can that you guys are interested in when it comes to cybersecurity or security, just in general, because cloud security is under the umbrella of uh, security. So yeah, every Thursday. Now you'll hear from me a little bit more. It won't be as long as the episodes on Tuesdays, but it um, will be significant enough for you to get the value out of whatever topic I'm going to talk about. And we're going to be coming covering everything. So, you know, starting with the history of the cloud and what is cloud computing? What is the cloud? Because there are still some people who might not understand. There is some maturation in the um, field, but you know, there's still a lot to be learned. Um, So yeah, I'm super excited for that. Please stay tuned. Um, Two days from now will be the first episode where we will launch into the history of cloud computing, what is cloud computing, and the benefits. So that way you understand why organizations are making this big transformational shift from data centers to the cloud and what risks come with that and what should you know (laughs) about that? How can you get in the game? All of that good stuff. So with that being said, let's see what's in store for today. First up today is how your Samsung TV can be used to hack into the company you work for. Next, there is a new ransomware sextortion warnings for Android users. Sextortion is such a like... 
it's a tricky word. <laughs> we have a first in security color news where some hackers decided to quit being a hacker and apologize for their wrongdoings. Like that was a really interesting article to research. So um, I think that'll be a good one for you guys. We have some spear phishing news that has scammed over 150 CEOs and counting because it's still out there. And then we will wrap up by breaking down the new contact tracing technology that is set to roll out later this month to combat COVID-19. So with that, let's jump into today's security roundup. With everyone working from home because of COVID, enterprise security teams have had their hands full keeping up with the security risks now faced because of their expanded security landscape. What do I mean by expanded security landscape? Well, typically, security and IT teams only have to worry about their managed network perimeter, meaning what's inside their organization on-premise when you go to your office. And they know what devices, typically, <laughs> are connected to their organization and have majority visibility into who's on their network. Now, that network perimeter just tripled in size wiping out visibility as now it contains not only managed organizational devices, meaning say, for example, your organization gave you a laptop to work from home with, or if you have your own, bring your own device, typically they would have you maybe download a profile onto your device that will manage like data escaping, what kind of security settings you have, XYZ, just to make sure they're managing what's happening on whatever device you're using that isn't owned by them. So, but whatever device and network you have um, that they have given you, now this also includes any networks and devices your users have connected at home, including that insecure smart refrigerator and that old unpatched home router. Now, security researchers over at Microsoft had found that cyber criminals are weaponizing vulnerabilities found in these insecure IoT devices and are using them to grow large botnets and automate attacks. So that's right, your TV, your Alexa, your smart fridge, your smart toaster, anything is smart at this point, <laughs> your old router, anything connected to the internet in your home that is an IoT device has the potential to be hacked into you and used for malicious intent without your knowledge. Now, this isn't old news. I have definitely spoken about this before, but the answer always, or I should say the answer as to why this is always possible leads us back to the lack of security by design in these devices. Issues like default passwords that consumers do not change when they bring their devices home, or the fact that a lot of users don't update them or keep up with the updates that might be pushed up to said devices after already in initially installing them, or that devices are using basic authentication over things like HTTP and the lack of two-factor authentication all contribute to the easy way in which attackers can attack your way into your home. Now, there is a nifty tool online called Shodan. It's like Shodan.io if you want to go to the website. And it's a search engine that scans the entire World Wide Web for vulnerable internet-connected devices. You can filter the search engine, just like if you were in Google, to search for specific types of devices, making it very easy for attackers to just search for users who have not secured their devices or maybe 
are still vulnerable on the internet connected to the internet. In fact, I went to the website myself and looked up devices with default passwords. And I saw that there are 7,200 in the U.S., 5,300 in China, and 7,400 in Taiwan that are all using default passwords and are attached to the internet, are basically open to the internet. And it didn't require any sophisticated, you know, search on my part. It literally, when you open the website, it asks you, or not that it asks you, but it gives you a bunch of different settings. There was one that's called default passwords that will look for devices connected to the internet that are still using default passwords set by the vendor, and boom. I was able to get that quick list in less than 10 seconds. And that just speaks to how easy it is for attackers to do the same thing. They don't have to do sophisticated attacks that we normally see in like TV shows or movies. You know, I, uh, I'm about to say iRobot, <laughs> Mr. Robot. Um, sophisticated hacks like that don't have to happen. It can be as easy as a quick Google search and I can just take over your um, device if it's on the internet, you know, if I want to. So for security teams, it is important that mechanisms are in place for them to continually assess their network and understand their now changed work from home landscape. For users like yourself, I know it can seem like you have no options for protecting yourself and your devices without opting out of buying smart devices. And to be honest, like, the average consumer isn't thinking that way. They definitely want to be a part of this smart AI machine learning evolution that's happening. They want to be able to take advantage of the way that technology can make life easy because users are all about convenience. But if you are interested in that and you do feel like you don't have any options, basic security hygiene really does go a long way. And, you know, I'm all about preaching <laughs> and talking about the same basic security hygiene because ultimately, at the end of the day, a lot of people still don't practice it. So I will preach to the death of me <laughs> about making sure you aren't leaving yourself as a low-hanging fruit. So if you do have smart devices and it allows you to set up multi-factor authentication, please do so and do it immediately if you haven't done already. Think about when's the last time you changed your password. And more importantly, make sure that everything is updated and patched. Mobile device scanning is on the rise, and a new Android-focused ransomware attack is at the forefront. A cyber threat group named Lucy Gang is behind a specific malware family called Black Rose Lucy. This malware originally was intended to attack mobile users to steal information through ransomware, but now they switched up the game and increased their likelihood by adding a twist to the attack. When a victim has this attack on their phone, it says that the device has been locked by the FBI because the phone is suspected to have visited forbidden pornographic sites and a snapshot of their face has been uploaded to the FBI agency. Now, this is a little bit scary for people who don't know better, and the user has the option to make it all go away by paying $500 to unlock their device and data. The Lucy Gang has been linked to a Russian-speaking threat actor in which they are offering this malware as a service that can collect device data on a victim's phone and install extra malware from their servers. According to resources at Checkpoint, this malware is distributed through social engineering 
And if you happen to go to a vulnerable website, the malware disguises itself as a video player application and a message pops up that says, to continue watching this video on your phone, you must enable streaming video optimization, select it in the menu and turn it on. Now, whenever you see this pop up, I'm not sure because I don't have an Android phone, but typically um, you'll see if you go on the website, it might be a little pop-up that comes up that says, hey, uh, you might be familiar with maybe Adobe Flash, right? Whenever you go on a website that is still using Adobe Flash for some reason, I don't know why, but if they're still using it in order for you to perhaps um, view the video, it's a, hey, you need to enable Adobe Flash, you can do so either by clicking here or enabling this in this setting, XYZ. This does the same thing. Once a user clicks OK, they trigger permission to the malware to install the payload without any user interaction, and now your phone has been compromised. The technical aspects of the encryption process is pretty interesting, so I can link the write-up in the description box if you are interested in that sort of thing. But the short version and why it is such interest, uh, I should say, why it is so interesting how the attackers did this is that they took advantage of a feature designed by Google to allow ease of use by disabled users. With mobile malware becoming more common and more sophisticated, not just for Android users, but Apple iOS is definitely on the rise as well. You know, this is just another example of the length attackers would do to scare you for their financial gain. And a lot, they're, they're, they're definitely uh, starting to use not the really big features that we think that are being rolled out. They're using simple things that we don't even as users think of because they were made for a different purpose. So for example, this one was using um, a feature that would help disabled users be able to function and use the phone um, in the best ability that they can. And attackers are using that to their advantage to bypass a lot of security settings and bypass a lot of mechanism put in place to help protect you on your phone. So similar to the advice I had given in the previous segment about IoT devices, make sure your phones are always up to date whenever things are rolled out. Um, I know sometimes um, users are hesitant. I shouldn't even say hesitant to install security. You just might forget or something might happen and it just might people postpone. That has happened to my phone where it will say it's going to install something overnight to make it easier for me. So that way it's not blocking me from using my phone. But instead, when I wake up, something might have happened and I might be using it. I'm like, OK, I'll put it off till later. And next thing you know, a whole month has gone by and you haven't installed something. So make sure that you install within a good time frame whenever a new patch is rolled out for your phone. And be very, very careful about the websites and links you click on your mobile device. Something interesting happened recently, and some hackers behind a string of ransomware decided to just quit their jobs. And they released 750,000 encryption keys on GitHub. They didn't just stop there. They also publicly apologized to all of the victims affected by their malware attacks. Now, I don't know about you, but in all of my years of being a security professional and even just being a person, <laughs> I've never heard anything like this happening in my lifetime. The attackers, or I should say the now former attackers, <laughs> they posted four files um, in the code repository on GitHub. 
One had the file keys, which is all the keys that they stolen from victims. And the others contained decryption instructions saying they have been releasing the keys and they hope antivirus companies will be able to issue their own more friendly user, user-friendly decryption tools. Now, the group behind this mystery hacker reversal was first discovered in late 2014 and has been widely known to mainly target Russian victims. And as of just last year, it emerged that they expanded their scope outside of Russia, with the U.S., Japan, India, Thailand, and Canada rounding out the top five countries affected outside of Russia. Now, what's super interesting, you know, in this turn of events, and I would be keen to know why the sudden change of heart and public apology did something force them to do so. I'm not going to go down. I listen to a lot of crime junkies. So <laughs> I get into like conspiracy theory mode about what's behind the motive for doing this. But I don't know. It's definitely interesting to know what triggered this. And it really makes you wonder, like, is something else behind this public apology and the releasing of this information? But we might never know. Phishing is not a new concept here on Security in Color, but not often do I dive into more sophisticated and targeted phishing attacks. Recently, it was disclosed that attackers created a highly targeted spear phishing attack, leveraging Microsoft services to compromise at least 150 executives across several countries, including the U.S., Canada, Germany, and the United Kingdom. Now, if you aren't new to using Microsoft or Office products, you might be familiar with the way you can share documents and link them in an email. This is also used across the board in various platforms, but specifically in Microsoft, there is like a certain uh, format that the link uses. Well, attackers took advantage of the fact that most executives aren't on high alert when it comes to email and are probably bogged down. So they sent emails with a reference to an attached PDF that redirects a victim to a Microsoft Office 365 login page. Here, they are directed to enter in credentials to view the PDF, and it looks like an exact copy of the Microsoft Service Sway platform, typically used to enforce security controls and document sharing. Once attackers swiped these credentials, they did a rinse and repeat of the attack and further targeted more victims within the first victim's contact list by dumping their email data. Now, this data contained all kinds of sensitive personal and business information and is a treasure trove in the wrong hands. Now, this attack is being linked to a Vietnamese-speaking malware developer group who are targeting small to medium-sized financial, law, and real estate groups. Being highly targeted in this manner means that attackers are gunning for you no matter what. <laughs> and whereas the typical everyday phishing user, um, phishing that users receive, they have a, red, a lot of red flags that kind of indicate to you like, hey, this is someone trying to scam me, I can delete this. Or typically your mail provider would have probably caught it by then and wouldn't have even let it go through. Attackers in that case are just trying to get low-hanging fruit. 
And with minimal effort, they can make a small to medium payout, you know, call it a day. But a targeted phishing attack, such as this, which is spear phishing, is when it's more targeted and definitely kind of um, goes to higher executives, which is like will, like a will attack. But a targeted phishing attack will use all kinds of deceptive methods to increase their likelihood of success. What the attackers had in their advantage here is that they were leveraging already previously compromised legitimate accounts to send to their new victims, which allowed them to get past the normal typical email security checks. So if you were a CEO and were actually security-minded and took the time to double-check the sender email, it was legit and it was really hard for you to distinguish whether or not this was a real or fake email. And once you saw that it came from someone you know, you probably went ahead and clicked and entered in your credentials. Now, this particular campaign attack has been going on since mid-2019 and has multiple hacker groups banding together to carry it out. So I will be interested in the development of this as to whether or not this is a more sophisticated, larger scale one where they're aiming to do something with this, or I'll just be interested in seeing the development of email security and awareness to help combat at the higher scale or the higher level, the CEO level of how users are compromised and therefore can attackers can pivot and compromise or try to leverage that to um, attack other users. I will be interested in seeing the development of this. Recently, tech giants Apple and Google have joined forces to develop an interoperable contact tracing tool that will help the government and public agencies keep track of the spread of COVID-19. Naturally, Privacy and security professionals raised some eyebrows and called into question the privacy and security concerns with using this technology. So I wanted to break down what this initiative is so you can make a better informed decision about opting in. First and foremost, this initiative will be an opt-in only one, meaning you are not forced to take part but it will definitely not only help the public health officials understand who and where this virus is spreading to, it will inform you as to whether or not you have been in contact with someone with COVID-19. And that's a major step forward in really getting a hold on this virus since we currently have no way of knowing if we've been exposed besides getting sick or perhaps you know, maybe thinking if someone disclosed it, like even if we don't get sick, we might still have antibodies or might still have, you know, something, uh, might still have the virus and we just be maybe asymptomatic. Now, this new initiative will allow agencies to integrate APIs into their application that will leverage Bluetooth technology for contact tracing. The APIs are expected to be available by the middle of this month, actually, May, with a larger contact tracing system set to roll out in coming months. This contact tracing technology will not involve tracking user location data or any other identifying data. Instead, what it will do is utilize beacons to identify whether an individual has been around other people who have tested positive for COVID. To better illustrate this example, we're gonna use two people, Tabitha and Tyrone, don't ask me why. <laughs> Tabitha and Tyrone just met each other at the park. 
they're sitting on a bench and they both have their Bluetooth enabled on their phones and they just chatted for about 10 minutes, we'll say. During this conversation, their phones exchange anonymous identifier beacons to one another using their Bluetooth technology. Now, a couple of days later, Tyrone found out that he is positive for COVID and had COVID while he was talking with Tabitha at the park. We already know that's a big no-no. He shouldn't be at the park, but we'll just say he did. (laughs) And he entered his results on an application from a public health authority. We'll just say, if he's located in Georgia, we'll just say he uploaded it to maybe a hospital nearby that happened to have an application and he um, uploaded his data there. So he found out, he uploaded his data, and with his consent, his phone uploads the past 14 days of beacon key information. And from there, the public health agency can alert Tabitha and other people who he might have come in contact with, who might have come in contact with Tyrone. Now, what is important to understand with this technology is that the alerting and tracing will not work unless people opt in. Opting in means that you are giving consent to this program and that they, you understand what comes with that. Now, granted, you know, privacy is something that has been um, up in the air here in the U.S., right? We don't have a lot of really strict privacy laws. There's not a lot of regulation around the tech industry and how people regulate it. We do have Um, California came out with their own legislation. We have GDPR over in Europe that applies here in the United States. But for the most part, we don't have overarching uh, um, laws that kind of govern policy, I mean, privacy at this moment. With that being said, it is important to understand how technology works because people Uh, can come to you so that way you can come to a better informed conclusion, right? I'm not going to tell you that you should opt in or that you shouldn't, but I will give you the tools and resources and the knowledge you need to make your own better informed decision. And I think when people first heard or that this is going, once this starts gaining some traction, like once it opens, people are going to be like, oh no, you're just giving up your data willingly to, you know, Apple and Google and whatever other agencies are a part of this. But it's important to note that they laid out how this technology is going to be leveraged. They laid out how your data and information is going to be stored and how it can only be, it can only happen with your consent and permission and like how long they're going to have the data there. It's just to inform other users if they've been around someone who has COVID and then it is deleted within a reasonable amount of time. If I'm not mistaken, I think they said they only keep it for up to 14 days after it has been uploaded, um, which is the, I think, current period, incubation period of like, if you have COVID, you should quarantine for 14 days. So I'm assuming that's why they have that 14 day number. But, you know, all of this is just information for you to know. And I think it is a a step in the right direction. And as long as it's anonymized um, and hopefully they keep, you know, do what they say and keeping our privacy and health information safe at the same time, I do think this is a really good step forward for helping us understand how do we get back to a normal life? How do we get back to 
every day going outside and make sure that people are safe and that they feel like they can confidently go into public without putting themselves or their family at risk. I will update about this a little bit later once it releases and once there's more information to see, you know, how the tracing is child tracing is going and the privacy concerns if they are being addressed. And that is a wrap for today's episode, guys. Episode one, season two is already over. Thank you so much for tuning in as usual. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please leave a five-star rating and comment your thoughts on Apple Podcasts. It really helps with gaining more visibility and diversity to the cyber and cloud security platform um, on Apple Podcasts. I love to hear from you guys. So please follow me on Twitter at Damibu, which is D-O-M-Y-B-O-O, or at Security in Color. And I will see you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to another episode. Please consider leaving a rating or comment in Apple Podcasts. And for more information, go to our website at www.securityandcolor.com. Be sure to engage with me on social media or write me to be a part of future episodes. Take care.